0: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. I know I say that every week, but this week, I kid you not, Richard Parsons is the co-founder and managing director at True. He holds no punches and really blasts a lot of marketing agencies out there today. He says B2B marketing has lost its way. They've chased the money. They've jumped on the thought leadership bandwagon. In his words, agencies were just... Taking briefs from clients and robotically putting that through their design process without much thought or value added, we discuss why the main objective for any marketing agency is to create fame for their clients because in his opinion, nothing is more important than that fame metric which creates memorability, preference and ultimately buying behavior. They not only back this up with hard data from Bennett and Fields, but it's also born out of their own results for clients like Rockwall, Microfocus, EY, and Yale, which have resulted in multiple award wins recently. Um, by the way, the Rockwall campaign, 700% increase in click-through rates above un- industry standard. If you can make wall insulation sexy, then there really is no limit, right? This was just such a fascinating conversation with a marketer who doesn't just follow the crowd and is led by money or the fame, uh, but someone who thinks really deeply about what really drives results for clients today. So if you're remotely interested in anything to do with the importance of brand and fame in B2B marketing today, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Richard Parsons. Richard Parsons is the Managing Director at True. They harness data-driven and cultural insights to unearth powerful human truths that are creatively transformed into memorable brand communications and delivered with pinpoint media accuracy to create notable business outcomes. They are ANA Global B2B Creative Agency of the Year for 2020 and winners of the Grand Prix at the B2B Marketing Awards. Other recent notable awards include the Drum Awards for Best B2B Content Marketing Campaign, Best Social Media Campaign, Best Brand Campaign, Best B2B B2C Campaign, and Best Marketing Week B2B Sector Masters Finalists. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Richard Parsons, welcome to Agency Deal Masters. Yay, thank you, Nathan. Appreciate the invitation. Really excited to speak to you. You start your career with Perkin Elmer at age sixteen. You left school and went straight into an apprenticeship. Take us back to that time. How did you get your start in the world of B two B marketing?
1: Well, um, at that time, you had you know pretty much a few choices: you go and you know get your A levels and then off to university, or you go into the world of work. And to be honest, I wanted to do neither. So uh, an apprenticeship with Perkin Elmer seemed to be uh, the right answer for me. It was uh, practical. You did part time study. Uh, but you also got experience of business, which I was really craving for. Uh, so it was a five year apprenticeship. And in that time, I went to every department of
0: this conglomerate. Fast forward a few years, and you joined Anderson and Lempk. They were the world's largest B2B agency at the time. They subsequently merged with McCann, now they're McCann Enterprise. Microsoft at the time spent over 360 million with the agency. What did you learn about running B2B agencies from your time at the agency?
1: Well, this is at the time when... um... Uh, you know, this is kind of like the late 90s basically, and uh, mid to late nineties. And this is a time when um B2B marketing had was coming out of the dark ages of trade marketing. Uh it was less about speeds and feeds and kind of features of, of products, it was much more getting into the human side of things, um, and advertising was taking off. So there was a lot of decent advertising in the trade press. Um, and that what that's what I learned mainly is that what we were is an ad agency and that we were creating ideas that were going to stimulate you know uh, at a human level and an emotional level so that was kind of the main thing that I learned from them and then from from there it seemed to me um, that uh, you know if I look back from that time I sort of see it as a golden era in advertising even in B2B and even now, you kind of you you, you see what B two B agencies and B two B marketers are doing, and we've all gone down into the trenches where we're we're not really looking at, at building brand, but everybody's working on short term sales activation. I know there's been like a massive change in in the industry with you know companies working on quarterly figures, but it seems to me that that marketing has taken a wrong wrong turn at some point, and it's forgotten some of those kind of uh, glorious lessons that we
0: learned in the past. We will come back to that later in the show and talk about those those lessons in, in much more detail. So let's talk a little bit about True. In 2012, you set up True to, quote, break free from the world of short-term performance, marketing that swamps the B2B marketing industry with little impact. You're in the business of making a difference. And you do that by harnessing data-driven and cultural insights to unearth powerful human truths mm-hmm. that are creatively transformed into memorable brand communications and delivered with pinpoint media accuracy to create notable business outcomes to make it memorable. So what problems do your clients typically have and how do you help them
1: solve them? Yeah, well, we saw when we, uh, so when I say we, uh, me and my business partner, Cosmin Giedes, um, we uh, saw that uh, B2B had lost its way, that a lot of um, agencies had, uh, and we don't blame them, they had chased the money and they had all um, uh, kind of jumped on the marketing automation bank bandwagon. They they were direct marketers at heart and not advertisers. Um, and those agencies, we, from our point of view, we saw that they had divested heavily in the um, insight gathering uh, stage, uh, the planning department stage, if you like, Um, And they are divested even in the creative department stage uh, of of creating work. Uh, What what we mean by the creative department is the bit where the idea is originated. So um, where copywriters and art directors work as teams to express the proposition that you're trying to take to market. Um, And it seems to us that a lot of people were then just jumping on the thought leadership bandwagon. So they were running email campaigns using stock images with rational headlines, uh, driving traffic. To um, white papers or thought leadership pieces, and they were using that to open, open, trying to use that to open the the door for um for their clients, and they had actually rebranded their studio as the creative department. So what we were seeing is that they it was so obvious that what they're really doing is they're taking briefs from the client. Um, They're not really adding any kind of layer of of intelligence on top of that brief, and they're putting it straight into a design process. So they really start to sort of dumb down what they do. And and the one thing that agencies can and should provide to clients is ideas, is a creative expression, is the bits that that the clients can't do, All the rest of it they can take in-house and do. So what we saw is a lot of agencies struggle. We've seen some go by by the wayside in, in, in the last eight years. And you know they it's they didn't really they didn't really get um the uh, that the the main objective of an agency is to create fame for their clients, and so we're working with clients that um understand branding, they're much more likely to um have a marketing orientation than a product or a sales orientation, which you find a lot in b two b um they're more likely to be marketers who have uh, got the ear of of someone senior who believes in marketing and therefore we are helping them to build those fame metrics and awareness and, uh, and and be in front of mind in creating memorability and stickiness for their for their brand stories their purpose uh, the reason why they exist
0: so let's talk a little bit about that then and and share some examples because i've seen some of the client work that you've done for rockwall really fascinating the seven strengths of stone uh, some of the campaign work that you've done for Yale, ey microfocus just just go down the list. Really creative, really innovative stuff. Tell us about a campaign and a bit of work that you're particularly proud of. Well, that work that you
1: just mentioned but for Rockwall, it's been, um, it's been phenomenal for us. It's, it's, um, it's kind of classic uh, product demo, but doing it in a very dramatized way. Uh, so Rockwall, for those, uh, for those uh, listeners that don't, don't know, is um, one of Europe's leading uh, brands of insulation. Very sexy product, by the way. <laughs> very, very, exactly, very sexy, uh, and, and and a core part of of the the product offering is the material that they use. So they actually create this um, this insulation. Uh, unlike a lot of uh, fiberglass uh, insulation, it, they they make theirs from rocks, hence the name rock wool. And they spin the rock; they heat it up and spin it, and it creates this this wool that comes from the rock. It literally is that. But there are certain um, uh, features of that material that they want to bring to market. So it has, for example, greater water repellency. Can't speak uh, like fire <laughs> resilience. Um, it it uh, it's it's kind of more durable. It's uh, it has kind of great thermal properties, which you'd expect for for um, for a material that they're going to use um, uh, for wall insulation and loft insulation. Um, but we had to demonstrate those uh, those features and so we created a kind of an artificial lab um, and cast uh, some of their employees and then really brought that to life so for example one of the things we have is uh, one of the uh, one of the the employees there um, has a vintage um, Beetle Volkswagen Beetle that he's that is his first car that he loves and we kind of wrap the wrap the, the, the car in their material and then we use these big kind of Fire flamethrowers to try and attack the car, but of course the car survives. So we we kind of tried to bring the whole thing to life in a really dramatized way. So it was a series of videos. In total, there were seven of them, Uh, and these these videos ran across social media. But we had like phenomenal click through rates. You know, way 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 above industry average. So over seven hundred percent above industry average for click through rates these are videos that were quite long in 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 uh you know in what in what they are because we have to tell this story and they um they had a really kind of high rate of uh of completion rate and and the way that we were buying some of the media as well around uh some of the some of the um some of these videos means that the quality score because people were engaging with the content and they were completing it meant that the quality score would, would had really shot shot up so we were able to reduce the um the cost um, uh, by, you know, sixfold, uh, just because the quality score had increased, which meant that we could show five to six times as many videos with the same, with the same budget. They had some really, really kind of cool uh, engagement metrics. But it, in addition, when we know that the people who had uh, been exposed to the videos, they then had a significant dwell time on the, uh, the client's product pages after seeing these videos. So we had increased the dwell time on those, on those uh, product pages as well. So, you know, really, really, um, yeah, really successful.
0: Really fascinating. And so is that an example of what you mean by creating fame for your clients? Because, you know, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm really interested to, to understand what factors you think made that successful and why you, you focus on that fame metric you know, what is it about fame that is so important, especially for sort of B2B brands that are traditionally seen as generally quite, as we said before, unsexy, traditional in the, in the way that they communicate. Why is that fame metric so important to what you do? Yeah, well, firstly, we, we say in the agency that
1: there are no boring products. There are no boring categories. They were just boring campaigns. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you look at uh, half, half the B2B work, it is atrocious it, it doesn't deserve the light of day and um but it's not it's not the product's fault it's the people who create the advertising or create the communications it, It's their fault um the reason why we focus on fame is because uh we um, we operate under we, we we conducted some research um uh which we call the rule of 3 which gave us some real insight into how business products are are bought um and it goes all the way back to some observations so Bruce Henderson uh, from the Boston Consulting Group in 1976, he um, he had an observation which was that in very mature markets, you start to see three or four brands that seem to dominate any one category. Um, and that, so that was interesting for us. And then Boston Con- Consulting Group, they actually then kind of wanted to verify some of those observations. So they, they looked at 10,000 organizations between 1975 and 2009, and they reaffirmed this rule of three and, three and four, that immature markets where you've got decent, uh, pure competition, that, you know, that really um, the, the, these three brands start to dominate um, as, the, as the life cycle of the market increases.
0: Join me, Nathan Anibaba, on Wednesday the 14th of October at 4 p.m. GMT for our epic webinar, Seven Priorities for Rapid Profitability and Cost Reduction for Agencies. You will learn what tools agencies are using to streamline, grow and scale their businesses, how to improve your project margins, ways to nurture profitable client relationships effectively manage your sales funnel, get paid faster by clients and shorten your billing cycle, better calculate your cost rate through project life cycles, and be appropriately staffed at all times to service client demand. If you're remotely interested in any of those topics, then this is the webinar for you. I will be joined by an all-star cast of Richard Casier, the founder and CEO of Wilderness Agency, Zuba Vintani, the COO of Stratus. Kay Masinek from Google Cloud. I'll be hosting, so join me on the 14th of October at 4pm for our world-class event, Seven Priorities for Rapid Profitability and Cost Reductions. Details to book are in the description. See you then.
1: There's other research that came out in 2002. Um, So there's competitive markets and the rule of three. So this is to do with uh, consolidation. And then also in 2002, there's um, some research that came out from Gray and Dean uh, from the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, who put a paper together called Consol- the uh, consolidation curve. It was to do with uh, four phases of consolidation. And in in, um, in their thesis, uh, they were saying, or in his thesis, they were saying that the fourth phase, uh, you end up with massive consolidation into three brands. And that's why you get these three uh, three brands that dominate. So everyone was looking at this, this situation from a macro point of view, and we were interested to understand from a micro point of view. So uh, we had um, access to uh, the data bank of the IPA uh, we, uh, for the IPA uh, award entries. So we had a look at some case studies there. We're also part of BBM, which is the world's largest B2B agency network. Uh, so we had access to um, our global, uh, global set of, of case studies, as well, of course, some of our in-house ones from, that we have in, in True um and um we looked at these uh case studies and we wanted to understand not the macro but the micro we wanted to understand was there something playing out in every individual purchase that led to these three brands that would dominate in a mature market and we concluded that there was um and it comes down to the way that the human brain works so without kind of getting all kind of pseudo-scientific on you it's the it's the limbic part of the brain uh, the base part of the brain that makes an emotional decision. Um, and uh, typically that part of the brain will come up with three different brands. Our chimp brain. Our chimp brain, exactly. And mm. and um, and and so the person that's buying has a recognition of a problem. If they don't realise that they've got a problem, they do nothing. But once they realise they have a problem, they look to a solution. And the first place they look to that solution is in their head. And that Olympic part of the brain, the chimp part of the brain, um, it throws up three brands. It's an emotional decision. It's a hunch. There's no rational thought going on there. All rational thought is done by the outer part of the brain, the neocortex, um, that catches up slowly with the internal part of the brain. And the outer part of the brain, being a bit arrogant, thinks that it thinks it thinks it understands um, <laughs> why it came up with those answers.
0: Right. It was my idea from the beginning. Yeah,
1: well, the outer part of the right. brain has really only been with us like you know, uh, two hundred and fifty recent, uh, very recent, yeah. two hundred and fifty thousand years, mm-hmm. and um, and therefore it's it's um, it's definitely uh, it's how we speak. It's how you know, it's the bit that allows us to speak. It's the bit mm-hmm. that allows us to kind of think when we say we're thinking. Mm-hmm. But it's the it's the the, the 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 chimp part that really is kind of driving all of these decisions. And what was interesting for us is. That when people come up with these three three brands, if you just fast forward to who they buy from, in 90% of the time, they were buying from one of these three brands. And if you were the first brand uh, it, that they were thinking of, typically you were, you were going to have a 40% chance of winning the business. If you were the second brand, you had a 30% chance of winning the business. And if you were the third brand, you had a 20%. chance of winning the business. And these numbers, uh, the the rule of three, plus these percentages really um, correlated very strongly with some of the research that came out in 2002. So what we think is happening is that there is a a human capacity to only go for three brands because three feels like it's enough you don't need four or five because you're already de-risking at three so you can personalize it like for example when you're um about to build a conservatory people will tell you to go and get three quotes they don't go they don't say go and get seven or 10 they just you know they kind of It's limited to three. So three does feel like the magic number. It feels like it's enough. It's more than two and you don't need four. Mm. Um, So you start off with these three brands. And what's interesting is that the first thing you do when you know that you've got these brands, so let's say that you're looking for a cloud solution, then you're probably going to go for, at the moment, it's actually interesting that the the, the cloud market, the public cloud market, has already got quite close to quite a mature market space. So you're going to think of Amazon, um, Microsoft, or you're going to think of Google. Mm. You know, three have already started to kind of dominate in that category. Mm. Um, but 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 forgetting the mature space, even at the new when it when the market was brand new a few years ago, you might have come up with some other brands. You might have come up with HP, or you might have come up with IBM, or whoever. Red
0: space. Red oh. space,
1: others, right, of course. So you might come up with these other brands. And what happens is you do a branded search. So you go to Google and you search for Rackspace Cloud Solutions. And then, of course, you land on their pages because they've done all their SEO um, you know, professionally. You land there. And then you, at that point, you're given some of the rational answers because it's difficult to take a hunch into the business and say, I want to go and spend lots and lots of money with this organization because I feel good about it. <laughs> of course, you can't do that. So you take in a whole bunch of rational mm. stuff. And that yeah. rational stuff comes from those brands. And then as part of the buying process, when you start to look at other brands in the mix, maybe other brands that are interrupting your journey, you're comparing your initial preferred choice with um, with, with now this new brand that's interrupted you. So all that thought leadership work that that, that people are doing at the educate phase, it comes secondary to the fame phase to the bit to
0: the bit that that the inspire phase you need to be the first to get into the consumer's mind exactly first to inspire that fame and then you back it up with the rational decisions as to why papers ebooks webinars all those thought leadership pieces are the rational bits that appeal to the newer part of the brain that you know 250,000 years or however long it's been around but the chimp part of the brain is the part that is the emotional side that is driven by that fame metric that you talked about. Exactly.
1: And there's some research that's come out um, recently in the last kind of 18 months from the B2B Institute, um, which is a LinkedIn and an IPA think tank uh, for B2B marketers. And they've put that together to help us understand... how B two B marketing can basically be improved, but they're using they're trying to use as much language uh, that, that's relevant for the CFO. So they're looking very much on the business side of things. So they're not just interested in in engagement metrics, but in in um, in uh, activity, marketing activity that will create very large business effects. And as part of that, they um, they went to Bennett and Field, who um, have. Uh, have uh, created some great research in the last kind of 10 years alongside the IPA and they've re re sliced their, um, their findings, some of the research that they've done using just B2B case studies. So similar to the case study uh, pool that we had access to, they also have looked at that sort of similar, similar set of research and they're finding that the emotion in B2B kind of far outweighs um, rational in terms of its uh, effect on very large business effects. Mm. Things like reach, um, so rather than talking to your existing customers over and over again, which, which B2B marketers tend to do um, with direct marketing, you know, talking to the same database or talking to the same group of people in LinkedIn, um, you know, they encourage us, uh, Bennett, Bennett and Field, encourage us to have a reach metric rather than a loyalty or even an acquisition metric. Um, these short-term performance metrics that everyone loves, and of course, difficult to argue against them when, you know, when push comes to shove, uh, but actually you get much larger business effects and marketing will have a, a bigger role to play in the growth of a business if it focuses much more of its efforts on building memorability, building fame, um, building brand. Uh, in fact, they uh, they say that you should rebalance your, your budgets so that about 40, in B2B this is, about 46% of your budget should be allocated to brand work and building brand and uh, the rest of it, 54% for, uh, sales activation, uh, in B2B we see it being, uh, most, you know, most of the people that we, we bump into are spending about 90% on sales activation and as little as, you know, in fact, as little as nothing on, on brand, but you know, let's be generous. Let's say 10% on brand.
0: Really interesting. Okay. So, so you said that it applies to mature B2B markets, this, this rule of three, does it also apply to consumer markets as well in the world of B2C? Uh,
1: yeah, um, we believe it does. Um, we we've um, only proven the case by looking at B two B case studies. So difficult for us to be absolutely certain. Mm. But the common denominator here is the human being uh, and the human brain. And it's in the last ten years, you know, with MRI scanning that we understand a lot more about how the the human brain is making decisions. So that's of course going to apply to B two C marketers. Um, but but just just to just to confirm, it's not just for mature markets. The mature what we see in mature markets is. The, the kind of consolidated thinking where everybody thinks the same brands are those three. But but our research showed that even in a brand new market, um, where it's a, you know, no one really understands the, the, the lay of the land in a new market, that the individual, every individual purchase will start with that buyer and that buyer will, if they're looking for a solution, they will come up with three brands in their head. And it's over time, when you have all of these kind of gravitational forces of the market playing out and you end up with these consolidation consolidation um, phases that, that happen a little bit later on in the middle, middle phases of, of the market, that it's going through these phases that you then end up with the mature market and three winning out in the end. But every purchase starts with three. And if you look to who wins, in 90% of the time, those three are the people that get the deal. Okay. So we actually, um, so for example, if you're relying on interrupting someone's journey, where they've already started the journey with three other brands, but you're looking to interrupt them at the educate phase with a thought leadership piece, then you've actually only got a 0.73% chance of winning the business. That's compared with 40% if you're the first brand, 30% if you're the second, and 20% if you're the third. So it
0: significantly drops off straight away if you're not one of the three. So the reason why I was asking you the consumer question is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you now, Richard. I'm going to oh. throw some categories at you. Okay. and I want to see which three dominate the market and, and are, <laughs> okay. are, are good for that fame metric. So you already talked about cloud computing, Amazon, Google, Microsoft. I think those are well documented. Very, very B2B ones. Yeah, very B2B ones. Uh, wealth, wealth banking um i don't know
1: straight straight to my head as coots has come up um yeah. i think when i think of wealth i think of obviously richer people so i'm so i'm now thinking where do richer where do richer right. people bank and
0: where do they get their employees not in that target demographic <laughs> yeah
1: uh saint james,
0: St. james um, place yeah yeah
1: and i think if i'm thinking of kind of very very large uh, wealth management uh goldman sachs you know, I mean, they're the three that come to mind for me. OK, uh, quite different. Um The point here is that when we define the category, uh, because actually in those three, I've jumped around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. uh, Coots, I think he's very much kind of banking. Uh, they obviously do have a lot of advisors, but it's going to be more banking. Um Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs is obviously working in terms of wealth management, for the very, very richest, maybe even, you know, uh, sovereign uh, so- sovereign funds and people like that uh, big big pension pension schemes um, i think if uh, st james was an example of a very kind of a-, a personal level but have got a great reputation um so yeah so that they they that, that, so i think we have, what you have to do is you have to try and think of categories yeah. rather than uh overall market so i didn't answer that particularly well i, I think
0: <laughs> okay two more really quickly Service offices we work yeah. Regis. I mean we work right now. Regis. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um I'm gonna struggle. There is a there's a brand near near me near near me, I see around in London quite a lot. It's something mm. like four it's F-O-R-E and then another letter, and I can't think what it it's not four X, but it's something like four, fourer uh, or something like that. But I'm struggling actually. I'm yeah. struggling with a third yeah. one now There's yeah. that that which means that there's room. Okay.
0: Yeah. But there is a third one. There's yeah. room for an entrant. There you go. <laughs> There's an opportunity there. So let's talk a little bit more about your role as co-founder of the agency. You've been co-founder now for seven years with Cos. Tell us how the challenges are different now to when you first started and give us an idea of the size of the agency, employees, turnover, locations, high-level numbers. Sure.
1: So I think the uh, the main difference is that when we started, of course, you're establishing yourself, but we were really fortunate on day one to, uh, you know, to, to start the agency with a, a couple of great clients. Uh, so we started the agency with um Microfocus and um, a smaller company called called Mura. And we still have the pleasure of working with both of those to this day. And we're actually eight years old. We started in 2012, not not seven. But the the agency has grown, and the main way that it's grown is by focusing, I think, we have this differentiated position, so we're not just, you know, looking further down the funnel, we're very much focused on the top end of the funnel. So the agency has significantly grown in terms of our capability when it comes to planning and um, strategic work. So we're picking up kind of really nice um, sticky accounts where we kind of get in there at the, the beginning end. And help people all the way through that process of defining who they are, and then from there you can get to a creative articulation, get to the expression of what that is. Um, an additional service that we built on—we um, always offered media when we uh, media service when we started, but it really it's in the it's in the last few years that we've had this um, um, a significant increase in our media offering, um, and so that's um, brings in the billings. Um, i'm not going to talk about the actual numbers um because we're part of we're part of BBN um and the reason for that is because uh, at the BBN level we're the world's largest and you know the the overall billing there is about 173 uh, million pounds not even dollars yeah. um you know so so uh, we are the london office of that and that's how we present ourselves to the market um because there aren't that many, uh, in terms of the rule of three, if you were to think of global B2B marketing agencies, there just aren't that many out there. And uh, that's the space that that we currently play in. That's the space that, that we're increasingly uh, playing in as well.
0: Really interesting. Last question before we get into our favourite questions towards the end of the interview, Richard, that we ask all of our guests. How do you attract the best talent to work for the agency? I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of the biggest issues for b2b tech agencies today attracting the best talent not only to compete with other competitive agencies out there but other attractive propositions you know your googles and your other other tech companies how do you attract the best talent to work at true
1: yeah so doing i think it comes down to the work uh doing good work Uh, i always say that uh when we're recruiting someone um the first page that they should go to is to our website you know go to Uh, trueagency.com forward slash work and there is where you will see the creative work that we're doing um the reason why that's important is because you should get excited about the marketing that we're producing b2b marketing has got a bad rap it's got a bad reputation so we're always fighting against that but there are people that increasingly started to recognize us um our um accolade recently of being um the ANA uh, Global Creative Agency of the Year for B two B is helping, um, but it's it's by looking at the work that we do, and that's exciting. So even when we're comparing ourselves with technology companies, there's um, I think that there's a big myth. Um, But what we really are doing is innovative. I think actually it isn't innovative, it is creative. And what the technology companies are doing is innovative. What I mean by that is I think that a lot of people miss, they confuse those two words. So I think that you can think of innovation as being that kind of mindset that comes out of Silicon Valley. They're looking at business models, um, business model innovation. They're looking at technology and platforms as innovation. So you know, and there's a lot of kind of uh, technology-driven uh, um, you know a- abilities to do that. I think what agencies um, should do and what we do is focus on the expression. It's it is a, it is a very creative thing. It's a creative process, but it's different from the technology creatives. Um, so what I think what I think we do is we do great work and that retains people. That means that people want to come and work with us. The other thing is that uh, we tend to, from, on a creative point of view, we tend to look to um, B2C marketers, so B2B creatives to do the ideas for us, um, because we think that they're the best people to understand humanity. They, their training in B2C gives them that leg up. Our planning process gives them all the tools they need to be able to do that quickly and and, uh, and cleverly. So. Um, I think, you know, B2, B2B is a is a technical or complex thing that we work in. Um, the strength that we have is that we simplify everything. So we carve away everything that doesn't look like uh, the job in hand. You know, so we get down to what, what is the core problem and the core solution. And then we look for great, you know, ingenious people to be the creatives to find that expression. Um, and, find, you know, and that it's difficult during this era of COVID and homeworking. But actually, the agency culture, the environment that we're in, the people that we that we work with, I know it's a cliche to say that we're a family, but we genuinely are. We absolutely love each other. It's it's in that um, environment that you that you find uh, the sticky bit in terms of kind of retaining people, because they want to do good work, they want to do the best work of their careers, and they want to do it with people that that are going to be you know pleasant to work with. And that you know it's it's getting that balance right. So I'm keen to get back into the office. I can't wait for for us to to kind of be uh, be back in that environment.
0: Yeah, that's a a great advert for any talented creatives out there that wants to get into a a B2B agency. Really, really well said. Um, Let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So really excited to ask you some of them as well. These are more sort of questions about you, the individual, you know, who is Richard Parsons sort of questions. Let's start with a nice easy one. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, I've kind of been a failure all my life, which is the, uh, <laughs> the truth.
1: Uh, well, not. it kind of is the truth, actually. You know, I wasn't academic, and I think I suffer, I've never been diagnosed, but I think I suffer from a little bit of dyslexia, oh. uh, which is kind of strange that I've ended up in the communications industry. Sure. <laughs> um, but I think that it's, it's those things that make, have made me think differently um, and have allowed me to be a better communicator. So I think um, not being academic and having to find other ways to express myself has meant that there's a kind of like a humanity to, to me. And I think that that really is, it works well in the industry that I've chosen. Really interesting.
0: Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your career journey. Who influenced the way you think about B two B marketing and technology? So, um,
1: at uh, at Perkin Alma quite early on, um, there was Dr. Kathy Deely. Um, she was just a kind of like a great mentor and a, and a good spirit for life. You know, um, she uh, gave me a, a lot of encouragement, encouraged me to go to university encouraged me to believe in myself. So there was a lot of kind of personal stuff with her. Coming out of there, going into Anderson Alemka, and Jaco alanco uh is one of the godfathers of B2B marketing. Um he was managing director there in the London office. And um he ended up being the uh the head of um, of uh, of uh, McCann enterprise um he's retired now but he's a great he's a great all-round thinker and um he taught me an awful lot about account management he taught me a lot about creativity uh, he taught me a lot about the business of of, of agent about the agency world, um, and then um, uh, a really dear dear friend of mine who's now lo- no longer with us, a guy called Paul Carroll, who um, was also in his career at Anderson Lemka. but he also was at Mason Zimbler, at uh, Fox Parik, um, uh Singapore as they became, and he was this 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 kind of like just a really interesting kind of proper old school creative but just dripped with humanity. Everything about him was about people. He was able to very instinctively kind of get to the answer quickly. But he taught me a lot about the value of of, uh, the big idea
0: and um, and what it can do for a client. So Mm. yeah, definitely
1: a big shout out to him.
0: Mm. Sound like great mentors. Tell us about some of your favourite books. What do you read for personal and professional development or just to kick back and relax on a Sunday?
1: Yeah, so... um, I'm am a big reader of um of 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 marketing uh, marketing books but I don't want to say that it's all it's all the usual ones I'm not going to there's actually a really really good book uh that I think that is called Cutting Edge or The Cutting Edge okay. um and it's, uh, it's, it's I, don't, I don't think you can find it anymore um it's probably about 20 years old and it's definitely got kind of old school uh advertising at the heart of it. it doesn't touch on digital or the internet age at all it's um, it's a book that, that talks about you know uh right away from how you get an idea to what is an idea uh and different you know different types of idea whether they be graphical uh whether they come uh, and the the background uh the background of marketing so there's a there's a really great book actually on the history of advertising and it's well worth looking at that because you start to see the different the, the different uh, uh, the different themes that come out so for example American advertising has come out of the uh, it's got a very much a sales approach because uh, their advertising comes from the, uh, the the snake oil salesman who would roll up into town and go roll up roll yeah. up you know right. buy my buy my wonderful product it will make you grow, you know big and strong and put air, miracle grow miracle grow exactly um, versus the the history of advertising that came out of Europe and uh, with Toulouse Lautrec doing those posters for the, for the Moulin Rouge. And so our, our communication has always come out of the arts and Americans, uh, American advertising has come out of the sales process. Snake oil. Yeah, the sales process. Sorry. And it's, it's really interesting to watch British television, for example, where we do tell often, I mean, we increasingly we're getting a bit American, but we still tell the story of, uh, creativity through you, through the, the medium of arts. Whereas if you go and watch American television, it's very factual, it's rational and it gives you kind of like, it's very salesy in the way that they try to, to promote stuff. Uh, but you were ask, asking about books, um, and relaxing. I, I, um, I, I read an awful lot. Uh, I'm a proper capitalist. So I read an awful lot, um, uh, from, uh, The Economist and, uh, The Spectator. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they would be my kind of go-to kind of magazines. Um, good, yeah. yeah I mean I, I, I kind of tend to be a big reader of uh, Wikipedia <laughs> which goes back to my, really it goes back to my childhood you know when we had uh, Encyclopedia Britannica in the house and yeah. uh, whenever oh, I got I bored that. yeah whenever I got bored I'd go pick yeah. a book um, me too and uh, I still do that with Wikipedia <laughs> and I love the way that you kind of dart around
0: <laughs> completely different experience though like just taking out Encyclopedia Britannica open up the pages like the pages were so thin and it felt so beautiful, and just having that sit in your house, I think, is a it's a shame that they're not around anymore. Oh, well, I'm sure they much? are around, just that no one no, well, they are. You know, they touch they, they them, and then they're immediately out of date. Give us, give us one more of your favorite books. Like, what else has been instrumental in the way that you think about marketing? There's a book called *Herd*, um, which I really liked, and it talks about um,
1: humans acting as a herd animal. Um, I really liked. There was some. Uh, there was a, a, a story in there where it said that. You know, um, humans, um, and normally animals that have um, eyes on the front of their face are um, predators and animals that have eyes on the side of their face are the prey. So a horse has eyes on the side of its head and um, and it's, it's, it's worried about being attacked by wolves or something else, lions or something, or bears, that sort of thing. Whereas um, animals that have them on the front of their face, you know, they're, attack- they're attackers. But what's interesting about um about us as a species, of humans, is that we have them on the front of our face, but we're also a pack animal. Um, you know, the fact that I can go out into the street and then be be surrounded by people, and I don't want to beat them up, and I want to be, you know, I don't want to fight with them, I want to be with <laughs> them, and I want to love them. Yourself, um, <laughs> uh, you know, so it, it it's um it's kind of interesting it's that we're a herd animal, and, and what that means for us as a you know a, a lot of our behaviour is driven by peer pressure and what other people think of us, especially in B2B. Um, I always say that the reason why B2B is more emotional than B2C, it's because we worry about how other people would judge our purchase decision. Whereas in B2C, if I buy the wrong deodorant, I might smell a bit horrible for a day, but I just won't buy that deodorant per- that, that Again, I'll pick a different brand. But if I buy the wrong cloud solution for my organization,
0: you know, I'll end up losing my job, my partner will leave That's me, it. and I'll be lonely and,
1: and, uh, and home.
0: Really interesting. What are you watching on online today is to keep you entertained during lockdown? Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus, whatever. I always, um, what I, uh, Paul Carroll taught me this, uh, Paul Carroll, credit director, he taught me this,
1: which is that you should read, um, highbrow and you should read lowbrow or you should watch highbrow and watch lowbrow. So, um, it's not unusual for me to go on to the BBC iPlayer, go to, uh, the, uh, the the um, Channel Four or the BBC Four channel, and um, try and find some sort of interesting historical uh, documentary. Um, and likewise, you'll find
0: me watching
1: Real Housewives of Beverly Hills.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it! But there you go. Diversity of thoughts. Uh, you know, you'll pull from different places. I'm sure all of that stuff mixes up in your brain really well to, to you know to help you in other areas of your life yeah, for sure. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit?
1: Well, I think to, uh, mentally fit, you know, I like debating. I mean, I don't mean professionally or um or kind of formally, but I love, you know, dinner party conversations and uh, sparring with people mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, this industry, I think, keeps you fit in that sense. You know, in the morning, you could be on a call with one type of business and one type of brand and then you're afternoon a completely separate one. So you're always having to adapt to be a, a temporary expert in, um, in what, what they do. Uh, so I think that the what I do for a living helps. In terms of physically fit, I'm um, kind of notoriously not not very fit, <laughs> but I, I, I uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a gym in the uh, in where I live, and um, I'm trying to go
0: more often. Uh, in the last
1: few weeks, I've been once or twice every week, so that's a start.
0: That's pretty good. Last couple of questions, and then I'll, I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person who comes to you and says that they want to? start a b2b tech agency or start their career in a b2b tech agency
1: yeah i mean you're saying tech agency um what i would say is you know b2b is as interesting or more interesting than b2c so if you want to go into the agency world b2b is just uh i think more interesting to full stop. uh the issues that you're dealing with are more complex um also you're less likely to be siloed in b2c You find yourself working in one type of agency that might be an SEO agency, or it might be a PR agency, or it might be an events agency. Whereas in B2B, you're more rounded. You tend to work on on lots of different aspects, different channels for a client. Um, But the thing I would say is don't believe uh, the, uh, the millennial hype, which is that everything new is more interesting or everything new is the future. Um, it's true that every technology and every innovation that happens, you do have to keep up to speed. You have to make sure you understand how they're used, but take a step back and don't always think that just because a new medium has been invented, that it's going to replace the old. Nearly always what happens is it finds a slot. So when TV came out, they said it would destroy newspapers, but newspapers are still around when um so when radio came out they said it would kill newspapers when tv came out they said it would kill radio when the internet came out they said it would kill tv and the truth is that every single channel has got a a reason for existing it just takes a bit of time to bed in but if you become a single channel marketer then that's when i think your life becomes boring so try to try to work somewhere where you're in a lead agency where you're doing the big ideas that are multi-channel, because then that's always always more exciting.
0: Really fascinating insight. Love that. Um, my final question, Richard, what is it you know about growing a B2B agency today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career? It's such a difficult one. Um, I, I think
1: I've always been a purist. Um, I've always believed that if we do really, really great thinking and great work, that it will be recognised. And somewhere along the line, somewhere along my career, um, I started to feel that maybe not everyone saw the world as I did. And for a while, um, I worked in an agency where we chased that thinking. Um, When we set up True, we went back to being purists. Uh, So the thing that I would say is that I I wish I'd been more consistent in my career and always tried to work on... Uh, just doing great work all the time, and not just do something because it's a quieter and easier life. Great answer. I love that. Richard,
0: thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. We have been speaking with Richard Parsons. He's currently the co-founder of True. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts, where you can listen to over 95 conversations we've had now with world-class agency leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve McGecky is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Join me, Nathan Anibaba, on Wednesday, the 14th of October at 4pm GMT for our epic webinar, Seven Priorities for Rapid Profitability and Cost Reduction for Agencies. You will learn what tools agencies are using to streamline, grow and scale their businesses, how to improve your project margins, ways to nurture profitable client relationships Effectively manage your sales funnel, get paid faster by clients and shorten your billing cycle, better calculate your cost rate through project life cycles, and be appropriately staffed at all times to service client demand. If you're remotely interested in any of those topics, then this is the webinar for you. I will be joined by an all-star cast of Richard Casier, the founder and CEO of Wilderness Agency, Zuba Vintani, the COO of Stratus. Kay Masinek from Google Cloud, I'll be hosting. So join me on the 14th of October at 4pm for our world-class event, Seven Priorities for Rapid Profitability and Cost Reductions. Details to book are in the description. See you then.